This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 1st, 2017. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the layoffs at ESPN and what they portend about the future of the worldwide leader and of sports media. We'll also discuss the NFL draft and all the players with so-called red flags and so-called character issues that did and did not get selected. And finally, we'll do a public performance and critical analysis of Dion Waiters' recent story in the Players' Tribune titled, The NBA is Lucky I'm Home Doing Damn Articles. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is the guy who held it down for two weeks while I was away, the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, a guy who could have used Dion Waiters' help with titling at least a handful of his books, mm-hmm. and also a man who antagonizes ultramarathoners one week and embraces them the next, Stefan Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. Welcome back, Josh. Did you have a fruitful two weeks? It was some of the some of the fruit was uh, rotten, mm-hmm. but a few were you know edible. I think Josh is wearing a new shirt, so it was a, definitely a productive. <laughs> I am wearing two weeks. the wardrobe has been enhanced. And with us from our studio in Brooklyn, you may know him as Big Waz on Twitter, and hopefully you've heard his voice on ESPN's great and now sadly defunct True Hoop podcast. It's Wozni Lambre. What's up, Waz? 
Hey, what's going on, guys? How's everything? I'm so happy to be here. Um, as a, I'm a fan of both of you guys' work, so I'm happy to be well, here. Well, we're today. happy to have you, especially uh, since you like also us. Also, a quick R.I.P. True Hope. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're going to get into that in a second, and it's a good time to have you on the show so we can memorialize True Hoop uh, more thoroughly. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we will remember True Hoop, the great ESPN entity that started out as a blogging platform evolved into something a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more that uh, Waz was a part of. We'll get into it. Um, and if you want to hear that, if you want to hear our bonus segments every week, you can join Slate Plus. It's just $49 a year, and you'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts. To join, it's slate.com slash hangup plus. Last week, ESPN finally followed through on its long-threatened plan to lay off a bunch of its on-air talent. A lot of analysts were let go, people that you'll know from the TV side, among them former athletes like Trent Dilfer, Danny Cannell, and Doug Glanville. A bunch of sports center anchors also got the axe, plus basketball reporters like Andy Katz, Mark Stein, um, and then a bunch of writers that we know we've had on the show and that you might know too. Janet Howard, Shauna Sale, Tom Ferry, Dana O'Neill, and particularly affecting uh, Waz, our guest panelist today, who uh, is a member of the True Hoop Voltron. Uh, Henry Abbott, the man behind True Hoop, he got laid off, as did Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, who's done a fantastic job covering the Golden State Warriors as part of the True Hoop family. So zooming out for a second, the reasons for these layoffs are clear and They don't have anything to do with ESPN being too liberal or any dumb bullshit like that. Um, As ably summarized by the New York Times, the network has lost more than 10 million subscribers over the past several years. And at the same time, the cost of broadcasting major sports has continued to rise. There's an eight-year, $15 billion deal with the NFL um, in addition to the NBA and college football playoff money that ESPN has been splashing around. So let's zoom back in. Uh, Waz, I think the thing to talk about here is, you know, ESPN was going to make cuts probably, but they had choices. Um, Why did they make the specific cuts that they did, do you think? And what do those decisions signify? Uh, To me, it just seems like when you have a shareholder model, um, you have to send signals that, you know, we're bringing in a little bit less money than we used to, spending a lot more, especially as you mentioned on the rights to broadcast live sports, whether it be NFL, the new NBA deal they just signed, college football, college basketball. I mean, ESPN is kind of a monster in that field. So, you know, they have to signal to their shareholders, like, we're ready to tighten our belts, and what better way to do this than to, you know, kind of shudder and move on from some of your biggest voices. There are a lot of different stories you can tell based on these cuts. We didn't get into all of the like slashing of hockey coverage. There's, There are the folks that are on TV. There are the people that are doing enterprise journalism. Like, Steph- Sha- like Shauna Sale, whom we've had on this show. Is there a kind of coherent picture that you can – you know, I mean, I, th- I think out of there that. is. I think there is. You sort of have to look at this in the totality and what's moving and what's going to happen coming down the road. So look backward a little bit. ESPN cut about 300 people um, a year or two ago, mostly backroom folks, people that you didn't see on air or whose bylines you weren't reading. Um, 
then you take the business factors into consideration. ESPN has lost, as you, as you, as you mentioned, was it's more than 10 million subscribers in recent years. The model that ESPN has relied on for decades now is charging fees for cable service. The people that pay those fees are typically people that don't watch sports. But ESPN is in demand, is, is desirable to, the, to, to, to many viewers. So ESPN has been able to charge a lot to stay in basic cable packages um, per subscriber. Um, at the same time, the cost of getting live rights to sports has continued to escalate to, to, in, you know, to extremely high market-based levels. The most recent NFL deal is for $15 billion over eight years. The most recent NBA deal, $12 billion. Uh, college football playoffs, $7 billion. ESPN has been spending enormous amounts of money. So what do you do? You have to come up with some cohesive business plan moving forward. And I, I think it's risky to try to pull too much out of these limited cuts. But if I were looking at them in their totality and looking at where ESPN is heading, I would say they're emphasizing one main thing, people that bring in eyeballs. So on the TV side, that is big personalities like Stephen A. Smith um, trying to create new personalities on the Sports Center shows as opposed to generic highlight type shows. Scott Van Pelt, Jamel Hill, Michael Smith. Right. And then on the written side, you want to keep the people that have big social media presences that generate a lot of hits for interesting takes. And who gets squeezed out? I think your mainstream daily type journalists who don't have big names. It wasn't that long ago was that ESPN was starting all of these like local sites, what ESPN New York, yeah. ESPN Chicago, yeah. ESPN Dallas, and they were implicitly signaling to the world that like we're going to take over for from local newspapers. And now they've experienced some of the same retrenchment that local newspapers have. And they're with these cuts, they're saying we're getting out of that business, right? Yeah, pretty much. Um and again, like they, you see what they emphasize—the stuff that they see as essential, uh, NFL. Um, but even the NBA, you know, Ethan, it, there were two guys covering the Warriors for for ESPN, and maybe they said, uh, you know, maybe we only need mm -hmm. one. Um, yeah, they've kind of scaled that back, and I think they ceded a lot of that terrain to SB Nation um, a while ago, and was just like, you know what, we're not going to go full force into that. But yeah, that's what that's what you're seeing. They're emphasizing people that bring in eyeballs. I saw, you know, I see a lot of stuff on Twitter where they're like, maybe Poppy Lebatard should have got let go or <laughs> Stephen A. Smith. And and I don't think folks understand that. Like, if you have a show that's drawing eyeballs and and you're able to sell ads on that, like these people are bringing value right. to the company as far as uh, money is concerned. Like Stephen A. Smith's contract is a value to ESPN. He's making the company and you can money. make like a co. Um, Coherent argument, and I think a correct one, that if you like good journalism and you like the things that Stephen A. Smith maybe doesn't do, you should be happy that Stephen A. Smith is at ESPN because he's bringing in money to pay those other people. Right, and, and it's not as if ESPN right. is trashing those people. I mean, again, they're keeping yeah. some of the more high-profile reporters whose work you know, wins awards and gets anthologized. People like Don Van Natta, people like Wright Thompson. I don't think at this point we're not seeing them go away. They did trim a few of those 
types of reporters back. I mentioned Sean Assale, Tom Farry, who over the last two decades has done tremendous work on youth sports and 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 other sort of quasi-investigative um, matters. But you make editorial judgments. This is what this is what media companies do. ESPN Dude. has to forge some sort of coherent strategy, and I think the changes from the 90s and the 2000s where ESPN was so loaded and so dominant in this field that they were able to try to become everything to everybody. And now as this business model changes and the revenue is not going to come in quite as easily, they can't take that approach. Yeah, people think that ESPN, you know, is a journalism company with an entertainment arm. When in reality, it's it's the other way around. It's an entertainment company with the journalism arm and, you know, everything that falls under that. But, you know, they have to do what they have to do to make the dollars make sense. And so I don't think you can begrudge ESPN for trying to, you know, tighten up the ship, so to speak. Um, and again, I'm not going to pretend to know more about ESPN's business model than ESPN itself. So, you know, I and for the listeners out there, like I have a personal relationship with Ethan, you know, um, Justin Verrier, who also got let go. Like these are people that I speak to on a daily basis. So my opinions on them being let go are, are a bit shaded by that, you know, just for sure. full disclosure. But at the same time, my own personal feelings and hurt, uh, I'm not going to pretend to know how to make money <laughs> for a media company. You know, like that's not some area of expertise. I think we can trust that ESPN kind of knows what they're well, doing. Well, I think we can go a little too far in giving them the benefit of the doubt there, right? I mean, they're still they're making sure. <laughs> they're making a shit ton of money. They're not making as much money as they were. Right. It's in less. And their, their heyday. <laughs> I think a lot of what this is, as you said um, at the top, was – is signaling mm-hmm. from John Skipper to his bosses at Disney and to shareholders, like, I got this under control. Because a lot of these cuts are like, are you going to save that much money by, like, laying off, you know, even 20 writers? It's like, not really. No. But you're showing that, like, this is the direction we're moving. This is, like, how we're controlling costs. But I think if we're going to give ESPN credit for, you know, making money and knowing how to run a business. Can we also say that they got kind of fucked on that NFL deal? Yeah. $15 billion for a Monday night game that is increasingly irrelevant. They got a really bad package of games from the NFL. And that deal, I think, is costing a lot of people their jobs. While your subscriber base is declining. You know, if ESPN is so smart – then they should have anticipated that a $15 billion investment in the NFL might not be the savviest move. Come on, Skipper. (laughs) But at the same time, but at the same time, as in previous generations, the leagues continue to have all the leverage here. Networks need this content. I mean, we we talked about on a recent show how NBC opted out of the NFL uh, more than a decade ago and started up the XFL. I mean, there was a reason. They were making a statement. We weren't going to lose money on the league anymore. The difference is that the networks haven't been getting hammered. The, the broadcast networks have not been losing as much money on the NFL in recent years. But because of the declines of ESPN subscriber base, they're going to have a, a tougher time making the nut here. But this doesn't mean that they're not going to evolve. I mean, that's the other part of this that we have to remember. The leagues are going to get paid, right? So what the networks are going to have to do is figure out how can we stay in this game? Um, 
Amazon is paying $50 million this year to stream 10 NFL games. $50 million is not a billion, um, and the NFL wants the billions. So the NFL is counting on some digital solution that will enable them to continue to get the billion dollars. ESPN's job now is to figure out what's the digital solution that will allow us to pay the billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, and the competition is only going to get more fierce. Like you mentioned, Amazon. Um, what's to stop a company like Netflix from nothing? I mean, Twitter a did it. Did Twitter did some games. They only paid like ten million dollars. So all right, so that's a fi- no, that's a fivefold increase, right? Fierce. So the NFL's already enjoyed a fivefold increase from streaming a few games on some digital property. You know, let's keep doing that fivefold increase every two or three years, and you're at your billion pretty quickly. Because we are. Uh journalists here let's you know end by kind of examining the belief that these folks are talented and they're going to land on their feet and you know is that actually true in this media environment is there a market for all of these folks to go out and find jobs and where where will that be uh, if and when that happens Yeah, I guess we'll have to see. And, you know, the new terrain is the Internet. I don't know how savvy um, these big corporations are about the Internet. I don't know how how in tune they are with Internet culture, how to capture the the imagination of an Internet audience. Um, They've basically been following the TV model for years now because TV was king. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing with the Internet, you know, um, these companies seem to want to do follow the same track until it just straight up doesn't work anymore. You rarely see visionary decisions being made. It's always just, well, what's worked in the past? Um, that's what we're going to do going forward. So, right. We'll and, and just because a model doesn't work for ESPN doesn't mean it won't work for somebody else in journalism. I mean, this is right. not the death of journalism, of sports journalism, which is kind of what Dave Zirin argued in The Nation this week, that this is a, a terrible sign for the future of sports journalism. You know, the the money may not be as steady or consistent, um, but the outlets are plentiful far more than 20 years ago. I mean, we, we'd be kidding ourselves if we were to argue that, oh, there's just nowhere for these people to go, that sports journalism is declining. There's more sports gen- journalism now than there's ever been. And more media, more platforms, more variety, more opportunity. Does that mean that everyone is going to have the ability to get paid the way ESPN was able to pay people? Maybe not right now, but the evolution of sports journalism says to me that something will evolve that's going to make money because people are out there trying to find ways to make money. People still like watching and reading and talking about sports. I really appreciate the faith, Stefan. And if it doesn't work out, we can all just eat, uh, you know, stew with, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. just marinate a bone and just just drink that. And that'll that'll keep us alive. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Last week in Philadelphia, a lot of drunk people went outside and booed NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell for many hours over many consecutive days. 
Aside from that, the big news out of the draft was that defensive end Miles Garrett went first to the Cleveland Browns. Condolences to Mr. Garrett. And the Chicago Bears then traded up to draft North Carolina quarterback Mitch Trubisky on ESPN, which somehow was able to put on a broadcast with a lot of bells and whistles. The lights are still on over there. Analysts John Gruden and Mel Kuyper and Lewis Riddick talked about how Garrett sometimes takes plays off and Trubisky only started for a single season. So those are some potential flaws, I suppose. But then we got to the players with some serious real-life non-game tape-related issues. In the second round, the Bengals took Joe Mixon, the Oklahoma running back who was caught on tape punching a woman in the face. The Browns took Caleb Brantley in the sixth round, then said they might cut him because of a recent charge that he hit a woman outside a bar. And the Jaguars picked Oklahoma receiver D.D. Westbrook, who's been arrested twice for domestic violence. The team's general manager reportedly said, many of us have been accused of things. Great statement from the GM there. Can't fault him for that. Bonuses to the PR staff, the Jaguars, for briefing the GM. Stefan, where do you think we are right now with players um, with domestic violence issues or with other issues that fall under the rubric of the red flag? Yeah, I don't think we've come very far or I don't think this has changed very much. The only punishment for NFL players, and maybe this is okay, is if you do something wrong while you're in the NFL. Then you have violated the terms of your employment, you have run afoul of the NFL's rules, and most important, you have made the NFL look bad. Maybe this is okay. You think the NFL should be punishing players for things they don't do in the NFL? (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't. Right. Um, The NFL, though, wants to make us think that they are doing that, right? So in February, they issued a new edict that they wouldn't let um, players who had past convictions involving violence or uh, sexual abuse, weapons offenses, sexual assault participate in the combine. Like, what the fuck? We will not measure you with our calipers. We will not parade you in front of a room of scouts in your underwear, and that's your punishment. Um, but as soon as the combine's over, what happens? Scouts from every team go to the pro days at the universities to see these guys perform. So the NFL is doing its usual dance. Um, we do not tolerate. We will not accept. We do not believe in. We do not condone. But we'll take you 36 picks later than you probably should have gone. Yeah. Uh, I think part of the problem here is that I don't think the law has sort of caught up to where society is on this issue. And a lot of times it falls on the NFL to be the judge, jury, and, you know, prosecutor here. Um, and I'm, I'm, glad they're not the ex- I'm glad they're not the executioner yet. I, th- <laughs> I think they probably want to be. Well, I think that was proposed in the last collective bargaining talks. Right. Uh, Roger Goodell should be able to kill you death by firing squad. I don't know. But, you know, I, I, I don't I think that's the problem here. I don't know that they've earned the right to be that. And I don't think that they have the credibility to execute these kinds of things as delicately as as needs to be the case. And I think that's what you're seeing here. The law is not coming down as hard as a lot of us would like them to. And now we're in this weird place where the NFL, you know, it's it's up to their discretion how they want to handle it. But do we trust them to handle it the right way? And part of me wonders, um, 
you know, don't these guys deserve a right to, don't these guys have a right to make a living for themselves? Um, maybe public ridicule and shame for the rest of their playing careers and their time in public life is enough. Um, maybe they don't get to do a Beats commercial, mm-hmm. you know, or a McDonald's commercial, but they get to earn a paycheck from an NFL team. And ultimately, I think society is served better by these guys having jobs and being able to provide for the people around them. Um, I don't know that they should be punished in perpetuity for these things, but I do think it's important that we recognize what happened and that they do um, feel the shame, the public shame that comes with that. Um, For how long? I don't know. Maybe it should be in perpetuity. I mean, at the same um, point, though, at the same time, though, we hope that the justice system would do a good job or a better job or a fair job of adjudicating these cases. And as we've seen with a lot of athletes, it doesn't always do that. That's true. But let me say that I feel like we have made progress in one very important way. I think if not the most important way, then at least an important way which is teams have to answer for these decisions. And that, I think, is the most important thing that came out of this weekend. The Bengals had to answer questions. Why did you take Joe Mixon? The Browns had the Browns looked the worst of all because it seemed like maybe they didn't even know that Caleb Brantley had been, you know, recently arrested and charged with um, hitting a woman. And, you know, the Jaguars had to say publicly, uh, many of us have been accused of things. And the people that should be ridiculed are, you know, the Jaguars GM who made that quote. And, you know, more than that, teams that pick these guys and then decide that they don't even have to justify it or they don't, you know, have to make any statement. Where we're not, Josh, is at a place where teams – can publicly find ways to say, we recognize what this man has done in the past, and we will make a real effort. It's a requirement to be a part of our business that this person have some continued counseling, continued help, continued restitution, continued whatever, just something to demonstrate that they are doing a real job trying to life educate the people that come into the league. And it certainly doesn't apply only to to 20-year-old men who have been accused of domestic violence or of possession of a firearm. It really should be everybody. And we've had this conversation before, too. The NFL should be about helping the people that they employ not only be better citizens while they're members of their team, but prepare them for the rest of their lives. Well, I think I think that's definitely true. But just to be clear, my the distinction I was drawing before is I've always believed that this should be on the teams to make these decisions and that they should be held accountable and they should have to explain the decisions. It should not be up to the NFL as an organization. It should not be up to Roger Goodell to, you know, whether it's with a firing squad or with an eight-game suspension to, like, (laughs) dictate punishments for these guys from on high. And what I don't want to see is, like, what happened with the Saints a few years ago when they signed uh, Kevin Williams – you know, former domestic abuser, and nobody in the local media asked them a question about it. They never had to say, you know, we've, they they didn't even have to say, we looked into it and we're cool with it, or we looked into it and we're not cool with it, but we decided to sign them anyway. They just had to say nothing. And what we saw consistently this weekend is teams having to answer for making these picks. Yeah. And I think I don't, another thing I don't want to get lost in all of this, oftentimes, man, uh, 
a guy like Joe Mixon who committed crime at 19, 20 years old. These are young guys. You know, um, I don't I don't know that these guys are beyond redemption. Um, I think it's important that we again, we we work with them. And, you know, you, you make it clear to these to these young people that what they've done is horrible and they need to do better. But oftentimes I think that gets lost in all of this. Like, yeah, they look like grown men. But, you know, I'm 30 years old. I remember what it was like to be 19 and I wasn't. I wasn't all that smart. Um, and that's world smart. That's people smart. That's that's everything. Um, I think with these young people, we put them on a pedestal, whether it be in college or do the NFL. And, you know, we make these people like gladiators. Um, I think it's important to not lose sight that these are young people, even though they can, you know, join the military mm-hmm. and do things of that nature. I think it's important to keep sight of that. Yeah, you, you, can, you um, can still be an asshole at 19, though. And, you know, yes. teams have to make judgments <laughs> about who they are hiring. I mean, just as any other business does. Um, but what is always predominated in the NFL and other sports is how good are you? And how good right. are you trumps everything and continues to trump everything. The change that we need to see is that for team owners like Mike Brown of the Cincinnati Bengals, who said over the weekend about bringing in players with troubled pasts like Pac-Man Jones and Vontaze Perfect and Chris Henry, um, who the Bengals have employed in previous years, you know, he said, maybe I am overly tolerant. If so, so be it. What Mike Brown needs to be saying is, here's what we have as an organization to, to educate players and to help the people we bring in here and to be sincere about it, not just lip service. We forgot to mention the like craziest and most interesting slash terrible version of this is the Raiders drafting Gary on Conley, the Ohio State cornerback who had been accused of sexual assault right before the draft. He was taken 24th in the first round, and the Raiders have since said, we're confident in our assessment of, you know, of we feel comfortable with the pick. We're, you know, we, we did our background and due diligence. There is no fucking way. They have any idea what happened or didn't happen with this alleged sexual assault. And all these teams reportedly tried to get him to take a polygraph test, and he refused to do so. There, This is one where there's everyone is kind of in the wrong, and there's no like right answer here. I mean, this happened with Lael Collins a few years ago when he was you know, a person of interest in a murder that he ended up being totally cleared of and ended up not being drafted, but this guy gets taken in the first round, something that hasn't been adjudicated, um, something that hasn't been evaluated. And the Raiders are just full of shit if they want us to believe that they really know what happened here and they're confident um, that they know anything about this guy or what he did or didn't do. And part of the problem here um, that, and, and as a basketball snob, I can say this, I don't think a lot of people realize what the business of the NFL is, right? Like the people in and around this sport, the culture of the sport, um, it's basically legalized violence. Like it's packaged and sold as a family product. But what the enterprise is a violent enterprise. And these are people that, you know, commit acts of violence for work. Um, I think a lot of times that gets lost in all of this. Um, the, the you know, and that goes from ownership down to the GMs, down to the coaches. You look, at, you know, Roger Goodell comes out last week and he says, "Oh, marijuana is harmful, <laughs> harmful oh to people I who for- use it." And this is a sport that yeah, pumps already. their players full of 
full of painkillers. You know, we have an opioid epidemic in this country and Roger Goodell can get up and say publicly that weed is a problem. And we know what they're doing to guys every Sunday, what it takes to do that, to do that job every single weekend. You know, um, I think a lot of times that gets forgotten in all of this. The, the, the entire enterprise of football itself is it's <laughs> it's morally questionable if we're being, you know, 100 percent honest about yeah, and it. And the NFL's credibility in shot. It, well, in matters <laughs> of <laughs> morality or drugs Ugh. or ethics um, or rehabilitation is zero. And that's why. Until there's evidence to back up teams' claims that, oh, we're going to, you know, we've investigated the player's background or that we're going to provide him a safe environment to help with his development, it's really just talk. The NFL has red flags. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Let's move on to talk about something basketball-related. A guy who is not currently in the NBA playoffs. And the other guys that are in the NBA playoffs are damn lucky that he isn't because he would be torching (laughs) them relentlessly. So among the recent articles published on the Players' Tribune, there's a piece by Marlins outfielder Christian Yelich who informs us that hitting a baseball is harder than it looks on TV. Northwestern basketball coach Chris Collins also wrote about how the school is building a state-of-the-art basketball facility. NFL draftee Derek Barnett said his mom was his inspiration. Fascinating. And the Rockets' Eric Gordon talked about James Harden calling him a lot during free agency. Uh, I made these articles sound worse than they are just you know, to ex- express a, a gradient bet- between these and, and Deion Waiters. But, you know, oh, the Chris Collins one actually was legit bad, but the rest were not bad. But they all bring you the same, quote unquote, unprecedented access in a familiar way, sometimes a rote way, with guys confiding that the cliches you always thought were true are in fact true (laughs) and telling the sorts of personal anecdotes that reflect well on them. For example, it was hard on Eric Gordon to come off the bench, but somehow he embraced it and persevered. Um, But there is another way, and Dion Waiters will point us there. The shooting guard out of Philly and Syracuse had the best season of his career this year. He averaged 16 a game for the Heat on 40% uh, shooting from three-point range, Uh, albeit in just 46 games. He missed a bunch with injuries. The Heat ended up missing the playoffs by one game, which was probably good news for the top-seeded Celtics. Um, That postseason miss inspired the title of Waiters' recent Players' Tribune opus, The NBA is Lucky I'm Home Doing Damn Articles. I'm now going to read an excerpt from said piece. I remember when I was in ninth grade. I had just transferred over to South Philly High, and I was walking to class the first day when these two security guards came over to me, mean mugging me like there was a problem. The one guard was like, hey, young boy, hey. They're questioning me like, hey, what are you doing here? What's your name, son? So I pull the basketball roster out of my pocket and I say, I'm Dion Waiters. I just transferred. The guard says, never heard of you. So I say, man, I'm committed to Syracuse. The other guard starts cracking up. 
He goes, son, you're not committed to Syracuse. They're looking me up and down like, nah, you ain't shit. So I say, for real, Google me. Now they're laughing their asses off, right? The one guard goes, ain't that some shit? Google me? I am going to Google this kid too. So they take me down to the office and they Google me. Maxpreps.com. Dion Waiters committed to Syracuse. The guard goes, man, you weren't lying. I'm looking at him like, uh-huh. From that day on, every time I saw that guard in the hallway, he'd yell out, what's up, Google me? <laughs> that was like my third or fourth nickname. My first nickname was Headache. That's some good shit. That anecdote yeah. and the way it's written is fantastic. And I mean that as content, writing, storytelling, narrative. That is awesome. I'm somebody who consumes a lot of basketball media. We know it. Right? We know it. <laughs> Whether it be podcasts, uh, reading long-form articles, reading blog posts, wh- whatever the case may be, uh, halftime shows, um, it doesn't matter. I'll, sometimes I'll even tune into my man Nate Duncan. He does like a uh, uh, a live viewing of, a, of, of the playoff games. Um, the second screen on, experience. On Periscope. Yes, exactly. I'll even tune into Nate's stuff sometimes. That's how much basketball media I consume, just for reference. And it, it, you would be hard-pressed to find something as deeply affecting as the two things that Deion Waiters put on the Players' Tribune. And oftentimes, you know, <laughs> you'll click on an article and it's like 10,000 words about why the Utah Jazz pick-and-roll defense is amazing. Um, and, you know, and I don't mind that. I love reading that kind of stuff on the subway. But Deion Waiters is able to deliver, I'm talking about emotion, empathy, uh, <laughs> just in 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 a, very briefly. His brevity is just incredible. And um, he's got a sense of humor. He's got self-awareness to him because, you know, listeners who may not be familiar with Deion Waiters' work or his reputation, he's kind of known as a guy who's irrationally confident who's, you know, <laughs> the ultimate gunner. Um, and he, and he kind of explains that attitude. He's like, I know what my rep is, but you got to understand um, my place in this world, where I come from. Um, you kind of have to have that right. attitude. Right, and, th- and I think that the, the reason this is so affecting and the reason it's so effective is to what follows after the anecdote that Josh read, that you're laughing about Google Me because it's hilarious, and then two paragraphs later, Dion Waiters is telling you, by the time I was 12 years old, both my mom and dad got shot. I've had brothers, cousins, uncles, and friends get murdered. Too many to count for real. It's this juxtaposition of, hey, basketball is fun and we've all got these eccentric stories about what shaped us and allowed us to get to the NBA with, no, 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 no. I grew up in some bad shit in Philadelphia and I yeah. did manage to get through it. And it, and it, and it allows you to believe that, that this is real storytelling about someone's life. Like, this is genuine adversity. Adversity isn't the guy that you know, pulled his Achilles tendon and that we had three injuries on our squad and we had trouble making the playoffs, which Dion Waiters does talk about in the story um, in his piece. Real adversity is being honest and self-aware, as you say, Waz. And composed enough to tell these stories in a way that reaches people who don't have any exposure to Dion Waiters or his background or his upbringing. So these Players' Tribune pieces are not necessarily written by the athletes. Um, they told me that this was a conversation 
that Dion Waiters had with an editor over there, an hour-long conversation, and that that was then turned into a piece. But this is unmistakably his voice, and it is a great piece of writing as well. So kudos to the Players' Tribune for preserving his voice. And I think, as I alluded to in my introduction, was like a lot of times the stories that we get on the Players' Tribune, and there are some that are great, they vary in quality just like stories do anywhere, but a lot of them, the kind of authorial voice just isn't really there that you can see an agent writing it or you can see an editor writing it and the kind of things that they're confiding are just, it's not the kind of like deeply held secrets or beliefs and you don't get to really know the person. But this is the perfect example of somebody pouring their heart out. And like, it's not just about the really terrible, you know, stuff he's seen in Philly and the hard time he's he's had coming up. It's also really funny at parts. It's just like someone who's like really in command of their own story and able to elicit all kinds of emotions. Right. Dion doesn't need to be Hemingway to, you know, to convey uh, a lot of these ideas. He does um, love a short a sentence, couple- though. Yes, short paragraph. <laughs> those one, those one sentence paragraphs. I'm a fan of those as well. Uh, there were just a couple of really cool nuggets. The the stuff about KD. Um, he's talking about going to Oklahoma City, and he's like, after practice, I would play KD one on one. And KD is not just probably the best one on one one on one player in the NBA. He's one of the best ever. Okay, in the history of the sport. And Dion Waiters wants to play that guy one on one every day after practice. He you know, like that he's he's kind of showing you his mentality. He's like, I'm hanging out with KD and I'm like, we're gonna go on a run. This is the this is the kind of confidence, the kind of belief you have to have in yourself to go from ducking bullets, literally, ducking literally. bullets in his neighborhood. <laughs> you know, to um to being um a, an NBA player. You know his contract's up this summer. We'll see what kind of deal he's able to get. Um, but yeah, this is just really harrowing stuff. Um, he talked about his brother in the other piece, and uh, the, he talked about seeing the headline and it said Dion Wade is his brother, and he was like, no, he's you know this guy isn't just a news blotter. Um, his brother who was killed. He was. His brother was killed, um, um, a victim of gun violence in Philadelphia. Um, and he's like, no, he was he was a, a fun dude. He was he loved to dance. Um, he loved to ride his dirt bike. Um, I just thought that stuff was just I don't know. It just it just hit me, you know, in a way that few pieces of writing can. Um, I'm, I'm, I can't say enough yeah. about Dion Waiters and his um, and his blogging abilities. It's it's incredible. I hope we get more of that kind of Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. And and the, the criticism of Players Tribune that you've amply demonstrated with examples, Josh, but you did leave out letter to my former self. I do miss, I do like the letter to my former self shtick. Um, the criticism has been that there's not enough journalistic accountability here, that the editors take these stories and turn them into pretty prose, but often don't fact check. Um, this was a particular criticism when David Ortiz wrote a piece um, a couple of years ago. The New York Times did a piece about that. Awful announcing criticized um, the, the methodology that the Players' Tribune applies here. It's access journalism. Access journalism. But do, does it really – does it matter? I mean with a piece like Dion Waiters, do we need to fact check 
like whether he was writing security you know, guards. We need to find the security guards. <laughs> Hell no, this is memoir. It doesn't matter in this case. It might matter. In it the might case matter of in other, other cases. And the reason it doesn't matter here, I think, is that this is clearly not a piece that's being used as a PR vehicle. It's not being used to shape Dion Waiters' image. This is genuine, heartfelt memoir. Um, Waz, why don't you end by just talking about Dion Waiters' persona as a player? He's a cult figure, right? Yeah, Dion Waiters, because uh, like basketball, like anything that are entertainment, di- there's different tastes, there's different strokes for different folks. Like some people, I tend to be gravitated towards ball movers, you know, or guys that can do many, that have many facets to their game. Like say LeBron is the ultimate example of this. He's a guy who can shoot it, he can pass it. He's he uh, he he's athletic enough to dunk over people. You know, he he'll defend the best perimeter player. Like he's he's a Swiss Army knife in that way. Uh, Dion Waiters kinds of kind of appeals to. A guy, uh, he's got this kind of cowboy mentality, right? Like an old west gunslinger. It's like he's gonna go down shooting. My buddy Zach Harper has the phrase "shoot or shoot." So if if that's the credo that you live by, Dion Waiters is your guy. You know, there's there's gifs of him on the internet. You'll see on Twitter where Kevin Durant again is again the best offensive player in basketball is dribbling the ball, and Dion Waiters is kind of in the corner waving his hands like "get the ball to me." You know, um, that's just the kind of mentality that he has, and that's his reputation as a guy who just has the ultimate belief in himself, sometimes for better or for worse. But I think this season we were able to see the best version of Deion Waiters. And um, the Heat were at their best. They were they played at a 60-win um, level with Deion Waiters on the floor this season. And I think he kind of was able to find a nice little balance between gunslinging, you know, ultimate shooters mentality guy, the, the, the sort of Kobe Bryant, if you will, um, he was able to find a happy medium this season, and it was really cool to see. And, you know, through his writing, you're able to see it's like, yeah, that's that's me. You know, this isn't fake. This isn't – I actually do think I'm as good as Kevin Durant at scoring the basketball. I actually do think um, when when the game is at, is at its tightest and, you know, the biggest moments in the game that I should be taking that shot. And, uh, yeah, that's who Deion Waiters speaks to. So it's kind of cool to see him have this outlet. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. For our afterballs, we should just do Waiters Islands. We should just go all in on yeah. on Dion. I think Zach Lowe has been a longtime inhabitant of Waiters yes. Island. Um, yeah. I hope they have internet access on Waiters Island so you can read Dion Waiters blog posts. What else uh, does there need to be on Waiters Island? I guess he has expressed a love of cheesesteaks, mm-hmm. um, although he said he's trying to cut that out so <laughs> we can get skates. a Got to get some roller skates Roller skates. Island. Yeah, we need a roller Yes, roller that was rank. another great tidbit. It, like, he was like, that's where I would meet women. That's where I met girls, at the roller rink. When I wasn't hooping, I was skating. Um, so if you get stranded on Waiters <laughs> Island, you know, you'll, you'll have a lot of fun things to do. Plus, Dion will just kick your ass in one-on-one. Uh, Waz, do you have a, a Waiters Island for us, an afterball, if you will? Um, 
I want to just take some time to talk about the Los Angeles Clippers. Uh, they've been eliminated for the from the playoffs. Uh, I think I read somewhere this is the fifth season in a row where they've been eliminated from a series where they were up in that series. And, you know, the Clippers have been a snake-bitten franchise historically. They've never really seen much sustained success up until they they traded for Chris Paul. They they had Blake Griffin and, and um, DeAndre Jordan already in place, and they were able to bring in Chris Paul. And um, they've been a real NBA team for six seasons now. And um, a lot of times on, on the nerdier portions of basketball internet, people are just quick to tear these kind of things down. It's kind of this idea that if you're not competing for a championship, um, you're basically dead in the water and you should strip it down and you should get rid of everybody. And uh, Chris Paul has a contract coming up this summer. Blake Griffin does. J.J. Redick. So a lot of these guys might not be back. But I do want to give a hat tip to them. Just, you know, I think a lot of times we poo-poo the success of teams that can win 50 games a season and kind of just have sustained you know, maybe not excellence, but competence. I think we we underrate competence in basketball, specifically in the NBA, because, you know, you can draft a Kevin Durant and a Russell Westbrook and become a perennial contender. You know, so a lot of times that's the goal of most teams. But I can say as a native New Yorker, as a guy who's been watching the Knicks and the Nets in many different forms over the years, and particularly the Knicks, who basically for 16, 17 years now have been a joke. Um, I don't think winning 50 games every year and securing a top four seed in your conference is something to be laughed at. I think those moments that you're able to provide for your fans on a day-to-day basis, you know, even if it is just a, you know, a nice OT win against the Warriors in a game that ultimately doesn't matter because you're not going to compete for the championship. I think these moments that teams are able to provide for their fans, whether it be at the arena or just at home watching, I think that's something to strive for, even if you're not um ultimately winning the championship at the end of the season. I think there's successes to be had in between being a horrible, you know, team like the Sixers for years trusting the process and what the Golden State Warriors are right now. And I just want to tip my hat to the to the Clippers for what they've been. They've been a competent team for 6 years. Um, they've, you know, unfortunately they had the Houston series a couple of years back where they blew a 3-1 lead. Um, Oklahoma City, they lost to, to Memphis. They had a couple of a series where they was, they've been snake bitten by injuries. But, um, just as a basketball purist, I'm never gonna laugh at, um, a product that is good, even if it's not ultimately great, just for the pure enjoyment of, of just basketball. Um, maybe they, they won't be in their, present form going forward but uh, they've been a joy for me personally to watch can we be also clear here that the clippers reputation is affected by the fact that they were owned by donald sterling for decades yes and the turnaround that they have actually achieved in the last five years is pretty amazing given what a dumpster fire this franchise was historically shouldn't have lost that series to the rockets though yeah like (laughs) will mike wilbon was on sports center or something yesterday he was like this just doesn't work uh, talking about the Clippers, like, come on, dude, doesn't, I mean, doesn't work compared to the Warriors. Sure. Right. I'm, uh, I'm, I mean, respectfully, <laughs> I just would have to disagree with Mike there. <laughs> Very respectful. Appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> Stefan, what's your waiter's island? We can all agree that it's hard to pronounce the Greek freak's name, even if, like me, you're Greek and can speak Greek. But Giannis 
Antetokounmpo isn't the only player in the NBA with a tough name. That is, if English is your first language. If it's not, then every NBA name is a potential tongue twister. So thank goodness for my favorite new website, NBA Dake and Aaron Brooks to Zaza Pachulia, given name alphabetical list of links to videos of active NBA players and coaches and prospects saying their own names. The website appears to be from Japan. I don't speak Japanese, but Google tells me that Dake is used when a speaker is trying to recall some information. The tireless proprietors of NBA Dake have helpfully collected videos of players and edited them kind of sloppily to be to be honest, this is not the most uh, most professional website. So that all you hear is the guy saying his name and a few often out of context words on either side. NBA Dake doesn't quite rise to the level of Slate's World Cup of arm folding, Josh, but listening to players say their own names can be mesmerizing and the clips can be entertaining. Hey, Facebook fans, this is Aaron O'Flaw of the Denver Nuggets. Can you guess my favorite vacation spot? Okay, here, this next one is from a Mean Tweets segment on Jimmy Kimmel. Dwight Howard wears... I understand what Dwight Howard wears is not as important as how he says his name, but it was panties with leg warmers. All right, if you didn't love Draymond Green before, you will after listening to him on NBA Dake. What's up, man? It's Draymond Green, uninterrupted. I do worry a little bit that someone in Japan now thinks that his full name is Draymond Green Uninterrupted. I also worry about this guy's media potential in Japan. Respect to you, LeBron. In fact, all four LeBron links failed to include LeBron saying his last name. Speaking of onomastic mishaps, I'm going to give a full warning here to the Japanese media to not rely on NBA Dake for their pronunciation of this Brazilian player's name. Hoje é o lançamento do meu jogo, The Blur Barbosa versus Aliens. Confira. All right, I listened to this like three times before realizing that Leandro Barbosa is saying Blur Barbosa and promoting a Portuguese video game in which the Blur Barbosa represents the Earth in this interplanetary basket game for mobile. <laughs> he never says Leandro. All right, there's also no way to figure out the name of this international prospect. Bonjour, je suis Gershon Yabuzé, Deschamps Gachard. <laughs> That's Gershon Yabuzele. <laughs> but I say it's always nice to hear beautiful names spoken, like this one. The save is called Will Pope. And I could listen to... Zaza Pachulia. Say his name all day. And I love hearing names pronounced as they were meant to be in their native tongues, like... Salut à tous. Mon nom c'est Bismarck Biombo. All right, I'm not saying that this website isn't helpful for Americans who want to learn to pronounce the names of American players, though. For instance, I've never been 100% sure how to say J-R-U-E Holiday's first name. What's up, guys? This is Drew Holiday. And I'm still not entirely sure whether it's Drew with a hard D or Drew with a little J sound at the front there. I don't know. Finally, let's get back to the Greek freak. NBA Dake offers four clips, and I'm not sure that any of them is going to be especially helpful in Japan. All right, he talks fast, even when he's wishing Greek fans a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, as he was doing there. All of the Giannis clips are in Greek, by the way. I listened to a few dozen of these clips, and the most meta one that I found is not Meta World Peace, but a Lithuanian member of the New York Knicks. No, it's not Kristaps Porzingis. He's Latvian. The other did. The other dude, let's listen. I'm Indugas Kuzminskis, I play. I'm Indugas Kuzminskis, I play. 
He plays. That's the perfect. That's the perfect soundbite. Josh, what's your waiter's island? So it's been a kind of uh, shitty last couple of months. The news cycle keeps getting faster and crazier, and the world seems like it's falling apart in a new way every five minutes. At times, it's felt like nothing that happens anywhere to anyone is any good. And that's our show for the week. Uh, we love your feedback on what we uh, <laughs> talked about today. Now, I'm um, sorry. I do have an update on this afterball. I have just received an email from the big three professional three-on-three basketball league, which has announced that Kenyon Martin and Al Harrington, the co-captains of the team trilogy, selected from North Carolina Rashad McCants with the number one pick in the first ever big three professional three-on-three basketball league draft. And the rest of the first round went thusly. Threes company took Andre Owens. The killer threes took Reggie Evans. Tri-State took Xavier Silas. Kwame Brown went to the three-headed monsters. No. Jerome Williams to Power. <laughs> Derek Byers to Ball Hogs. And Maurice Evans, the Ghost Ballers. I can tell by the fact that Waz is laughing that he is in the sweet spot of the demographic for this league, as am I. And if you similarly chuckled or maybe even just nodded in recognition, then you might understand why at times in the last few months it has seriously felt like PR emails from the old person three-on-three league founded by Ice Cube are the only thing in this world that are still capable of bringing me joy. Let me uh, read you a couple subject lines from emails that I have received in the last few months that brought me joy. Big Three's Chauncey Billups and Steven Jackson to co-captain Killer Threes. Come on. <laughs> That's a great email. Big Three's Jermaine O'Neal and Bonzi Wells join forces on Tri-State. Oh, my God. I'm reading. Release. Brian Scalabrini, Josh Childress, Reggie Evans, Larry Hughes signed to Big Three. Lastly, Big Three is Corey Maggette and Katino Mobley join forces on power. Remember oh, Katino Mobley? Cat Mobley. Yes, of course. So footage of him surfaced recent. Well, not recent. I think it was about a year ago, and he's got a full head of gray hair. But he was just destroying. It was like the real life Uncle Drew commercial. (laughs) Yes, yes. Deadspan has a recurring feature called "Let's Remember Some Guys," and these posts are literally just lists of old timey uh, players. Not even that old timey. Like here's an example of a baseball version of "Let's Remember Some Guys." Ron Say, Phil Plantier, Tom Pagnazzi, Aaron Seeley, John Jaha. Just a list of some guys. Uh, wait, here's a basketball one. <laughs> Let's remember these guys. Keith Van Horn, Kerry Kittles, Mehmet Okor, Brevin Knight, Chris Dudley, Michael Ruffin, and so on and so forth. So this is essentially Let's Remember Some Guys, the Basketball League. And I love it so much. The full draft results came out. There are 24 guys who... Were taken among plus, uh, you know, in addition to the ones I already mentioned, you've got Rasul Butler in there, Marcus Banks, Larry Hughes, James White, the guy who can dunk from the free throw line, mm-hmm. maybe not anymore, Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, my personal hero, Dominic McGuire of Washington Wizards fame, Muchi Norris of Muchi Norris fame. The thing that I find most interesting though is that they had sent out a list of 70 former NBA stars who were signed on to compete for the 24 spots, the 24 remaining spots on the eight teams. 
And some of these guys didn't get taken. Earl Boykins. Does Earl Boykins have to be in like the three-on-three D-League? Uh, Shane Heal of Australia. Where does where does Shane Heal do, do now? He goes Ronald, and plays in the three on three league in Australia. Ronald Murray, Lawrence Moten, Pops Minsabansu, oh, Jamario awesome. Moon, Smush Parker, Ruben Patterson, Eddie Robinson. I could I could go on. I, maybe I will go on. No, I'll stop there. But these <laughs> these games are starting at Barclays Center in Brooklyn. June 25th. They'll then be uh, every week at a different city around the country, and they're going to be broadcast um, on Fox Sports the day after. They're going to have like four games, each of these sites, and they'll broadcast them the next day. And I failed to mention the captains and coaches of each of the teams. Allen Iverson is going to play, and he's on a team with Dermar Johnson. Uh, Richard Lewis and Jason Williams. These are the the frontline dudes. I already mentioned Chauncey Belts and Steven Jackson, um, Brian Scalabrini, Josh Childress. I just want to keep listing guys who play in the three-on-three league. I can't stop. Waz, are you going to be at Barclays Center on June 25th? I'll probably try to make it. Yeah, <laughs> probably try. This, That's- this, yeah, because this seems, you know, last summer, I forget what the name of this tournament, I think it was just called the tournament or the league or whatever. It was a bunch of ex-guys and I think. TBT, the uh, basketball tournament. Yes, yes, yes. And um, they were competing for like a million bucks, I think was the was the ultimate prize if you won the championship. And I, I caught myself watching a few of the games uh, while I was home and I, they were pretty entertaining. And this was like, you know, regular five on five of a, a bunch of guys that are ostensibly either washed up or no longer good enough to play in the NBA. They're playing overseas and, and things of that nature. And I found myself being entertained by that just as a hoops junkie. Um, this three on three format, I think, you know, adds a, a, a nice little wrinkle to Don't it. Don't have to run as far. You, exactly. <laughs> it take it? How does this work? It has to be make or take it or else they should disband the league instantly. <laughs> Is it shirts and skins? That I don't know. They've got all these terrible names for all the teams like uh, the killer – I mean killer threes. I mean the names are awful. But I guess maybe that just adds to, to oh some God, of the joy. It's part of the charm. The Corey Maggetti. Did but, you mention Corey McGinnis? Yeah, Steve Francis, unfortunately, went undrafted. That's what I'm saying. It's like the, they've got like a deep bench of dudes that I have heard of. That I would want to watch. Just because you've heard of them, though, <laughs> they might not be able to get up and down right. the half court anymore. Let's let's stop here. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. For real, you can email us at hangup at slate.com. We also got their links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Thanks to uh, Wozni Lambre for joining us this week. You can follow him on Twitter. He's Big Woz. Our intern is Adam Willis. Our producer is Patrick Fort. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.